Welcome, welcome. My name is Carrie, and today I was tasked with preaching. Um, so far, I haven't said anything heretical, so Dennis keeps asking me back. All right. Uh, we'll go ahead and do a quick prayer, and then we'll dive in. Thank you, Jesus, for today and this lovely warm weather in the midst of December. You are a gracious and loving God, and I'm glad that we know you. I pray, Lord, that you speak through me today and that uh, you open the hearts and minds of everyone here so that they can hear the message they need from you. In Jesus' name, amen. In 2013, I was starting my first year at Pittsburgh Theological Seminary. I had just moved from the flatlands of Ohio, and I was relocating here to get a double master's degree, one in divinity and one in social work. I had never once been in a private Christian school before this moment. I'd always attended a public education all the way through undergrad. So my only knowledge about God, Christianity, or church came from my upbringing and my personal relationship with Jesus. As you can imagine, seminary was quite the culture shock. Not just in the classroom or at daily chapel, but also in my relationships. I was meeting peers who spoke an entirely different language than me. They were dropping names of old dead white men that I either vaguely recognized, like Martin Luther, the German priest and theologian that helped usher in our existence of the Protestant church, or that I'd never heard of, like John Calvin and Karl Barth. These were particular theologians this seminary loved to reference. But it wasn't just names I didn't recognize, but also words like hermeneutics, theodicy, exegesis, and apocrypha. You could find me in class quickly marking any asterisk of any words I didn't recognize to look up later. I don't recall who, but someone learned I was feeling multiple steps behind my peers. And they told me about a dictionary that I might benefit from owning. A dictionary. I quickly purchased one and often referenced it while doing homework in my apartment because who knew there's a dictionary for just theological terms. That's all. Would have never known. So part of the way God has designed me is to constantly be curious, inquisitive, reflecting on new information and trying to understand. I enjoy learning, broadening my knowledge and understanding of just about everything other than mathematics. That one's a no-go. From a young age, I would challenge the information before me, trying to ascertain the other side of it, the questions it poses, and what consequences come from that information. If I could make money by being a student, rather than increasing my debt, I would be a professional student. So we're about three months into my first quarter at the seminary. I'm attending classes, writing papers, reading all these theological texts, and going to chapel. And here it was in chapel where I first heard of this church season called Advent. That word, Advent. It kept getting repeated in various contexts, at chapel and in class. Everyone seemed to be making a big deal of it. 
there'd be extra church services and special decorations to represent Advent. I was so lost. So I advocated for myself and decided to go to the source, our worship professor, to find out what is Advent. I sent her an email, and she's someone that I hadn't had in classes yet to inquire about Advent. She responded eagerly to set up an in-person meeting so we could discuss this. I didn't understand her eagerness or why she felt we should discuss it in person. I could already tell we were on a different page. But I showed up to her office anyway, and she greeted me while closing her office door. Once she sat down, she stated, so, you want to talk about Advent? And I nodded. What about Advent would you like to discuss? Sheepishly, I replied, well, I guess I'd start with, what is it? What's Advent? A look of confusion befell her face. And I knew for sure we had very different expectations about this conversation. She repeated my question back to me, seemingly dumbfounded, as if she couldn't understand what I was asking her. I gathered that she thought we were going to be having some great theological debate about Advent. Instead, I confirmed that, yes, I just want to know what it is. <laughs> she then inquired as to what my denominational background was and what I think about Advent. This confirmed for me, yep, different conversations here. She was shocked to learn that I only knew about three church holidays, Christmas, Easter, and only later in my life, Pentecost. I told her I'd never heard of Advent until that week. I then got a brief mini teaching on the history and purpose of Advent, but this would not be the last time I befuddled a teacher. Those stories are for a different time. Today is considered the first Sunday of Advent, and if you relate to my story, then I'd like to give you a very brief explanation of this church season and why this word is on our church calendar. The word Advent originates from a Latin word that means coming. When you hear the word Advent, you can think of anticipating or waiting. The church commemorates the Advent season as a time for us to be anticipating and waiting on the arrival of Jesus Christ, our Savior, both as a baby and again when he returns during what we call the end times. Both of these events are the fulfillment of the promises of God. So as we approach Christmas, we mark this season as a time to wait with hope and anticipating Jesus' birth and Jesus' second coming, as well as the keeping of God's promises. Often churches will have different themes each Sunday of Advent that relate to this anticipation and promise keeping. Our passage today points to the themes of waiting and hope. The first week of Advent is to remind us of the hope we have in the promise of God. So as we turn to Luke 1, verses 5 through 23, let us find that hope and promise. In the days of King Herod of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly order of Abijah. His wife was descended from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Both of them were righteous before God, living blamelessly according to all the commandments and regulations of the Lord. But they had no children. 
because Elizabeth was barren and both were getting on in years. Once, when he was serving as priest before God, during his section's turn of duty, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to enter the sanctuary of the Lord to offer incense. Now at the time of the incense offering, the whole assembly of the people were praying outside. Then there appeared to him an angel of the Lord, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was terrified, and fear overwhelmed him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you will name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. He will turn many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God. When the spirit and power of Elijah, with the spirit and power of Elijah, he will go before him to turn the hearts of parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous, to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, how can I know this will happen? For I'm an old man, and my wife is getting on in years. The angel replied, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. But now, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time, you will become mute, unable to speak, until the day these things occur. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering at his delay in the sanctuary. When he did come out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the sanctuary. He kept motioning to them and remained unable to speak. When his time of service was ended, he returned to home. We find Zechariah going about his priestly duties. Twice a year, he would leave his countryside home to stay at the temple for a week at a time. But on this particular occasion, it was even more special. For this week, he had been chosen, through the casting of lots, to offer incense at the altar just outside of the Holy of Holies. Zechariah is performing a priestly duty in the second most holy place within the temple. And this particular ritual would likely only happen once in a lifetime per priest. So for Zechariah, this is not a normal week on the job, and his day is about to become even more abnormal. For years, likely decades, Zechariah and his wife Elizabeth have been praying and waiting for a child. They've been prayerfully waiting for so long that the community considers Elizabeth to be barren, and Zechariah feels that they're now too old for a baby to be conceived. As we've shared before, a woman not having children was considered a failure. She would be looked down on as if she carried a contagious virus. People would suspect she's broken in some way. Maybe she's a sinner, unrighteous, being punished. She would endure much shame, whispers, and disdain. Some of us don't need to imagine what it's like to be an outsider in our society. 
where people easily notice your differences and interact awkwardly with you. But for those that struggle to empathize with the plight of this couple, consider the lack of hope you may feel, the discouragement, or the sense of being abandoned by God and by the community that you rely on. But for reasons we don't know, God decides this is the moment to answer Zechariah and Elizabeth's prayer for children. And not only will they bear a child, but this child will be a key figure in Israel's history, as he will be the one who prepares the people of Israel to meet their Messiah, the Christ. In the story of Elizabeth and Zechariah and their son John, we find multiple examples of hope. There are three specific ways this passage points to that message of hope, which is ultimately the hope of Advent. First, God hears the prayers of God's people. Elizabeth and Zechariah are described as righteous and prayerful people. Zechariah is offering incense on the altar. That offering of incense, it symbolizes the prayers of God's people and that they are a sweet-smelling fragrance to God. God enjoys our prayers. And Gabriel confirms that God has heard the prayers of Zechariah and Elizabeth. The second instance of hope in this passage is that God speaks to God's people, and in a variety of ways. First, Gabriel provides a message to Zechariah. Gabriel identifies himself as a messenger of God and shares with him a plan that only God can bring forth. Zechariah, in his befuddlement, is now unable to speak until baby John is born. But as part of his priestly duty, he has to give a blessing to the waiting community outside of the section of the temple. When he appears and cannot vocally communicate, he has to attempt to express a message through bodily gestures. The community recognizes through this that God has visited Zechariah. So now the community is confidently made aware that God is speaking to them and is at work. The final way this passage points to hope is in the conception and the message of John the Baptist. For it's through John's story we will be introduced to Jesus and God's ultimate plan of hope, which is our redemption by the Christ. John's call will be to spread the word that the prophecy found in Jeremiah 33 is coming to pass. Verses 14 through 16 say, The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good promise I made to the people of Israel and Judah. In those days and at that time, I will make a righteous branch sprout from David's line. He will do what is just and right in the land. In those days, Judah will be saved and Jerusalem will live in safety. This is the name by which it will be called the Lord, our righteous Savior. And it isn't just that our hope is in Jesus, but is also in the fact that God keeps God's promises. This is the hope of Advent. We are loved by a promise-keeping God who hears our prayers, who speaks to us, and who has a plan to redeem the world in which we live. I'll say it again. The hope of Advent is we are loved by a promise-keeping God. You might be thinking, wow, that was a short and positive message, great place to stop, cool, the Steelers game is at one, we're out of here. 
And while I, tempted, well, I was tempted to end it there, I felt it wouldn't actually encompass the entire message found in this passage. Saccharine sweet sermons have their time and place, but at Garden City, we try to be as real as possible when appropriate. And as a mental health therapist who's lived through my own traumas and struggles, I thought it would be disingenuous to write a message that only addresses the positive. So buckle in, because while we all need a message of hope, it's important that we don't skip the waiting that preceded the hope. It's so easy to zoom through the hard parts of the text when we see that the resolution is just a few verses later. Oh great, look, God's gonna hear their prayers, Elizabeth is pregnant, Jesus is born, bam, bam, boom. But we need to name the reality of what it's like living between the now and the not yet. That is, the space between our present and God's promise being fulfilled. That is the space where Elizabeth and Zechariah lived for decades, barren and waiting. The same space of waiting that God's people have been in since the beginning of time, anticipating the arrival of a savior. We wouldn't fully understand hope or anticipating without knowing what it is to wait. Our dreams, our wishes, and prayers, they're all magnified by knowing what it is to be discouraged, to persevere, to have faith. You see, it's generally believed that God has been silent for about 400 years before Gabriel speaks to Zechariah. Between the last writing of the Old Testament and the earliest writing of the New Testament, about 400 years of silence have passed by. Centuries have come and gone, empires have risen and fallen, land boundaries to form countries have been shaped and reshaped. Entire people groups have moved around the world. 400 years is a long time to be waiting and hoping on a promise from God. Now, I don't know if you know, but um, humans aren't typically patient people. We're uh, often ruled by our feelings and impulses. Waiting is hard. And that's an understatement. <laughs> we live in a culture that does not appreciate delayed gratification or understand how to be patient or that even practices waiting. We are in a culture that encourages you to get whatever you want now. Who cares if it may not be the right thing or the right time for you? You want it? Go get it. So oftentimes, that 400 years of silence is how waiting can feel for us, that we've been waiting for 400 years of whatever hope or dream we're desiring to come true. Maybe you're waiting for a promotion or retirement. Could be the birth of a baby or the buying of a house. Maybe you find yourself waiting to be married or for financial security or waiting for that return call from the doctor's office or for clarity on your future, or for someone to apologize, or waiting for peace and healing, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting some more. An ache can be created in that delay, like you're walking around with a gaping wound or a hole in your body. Sometimes waiting can feel like you're moving through a muddy swamp trying to make progress forward, but unsure of where that stable land is, and feeling caught or like something's trying to drag you down, 
The experience of waiting is a longing that can become full of weariness and exhaustion, creating feelings of despair or bitterness or even a resentment of others. It's likely Zechariah and Elizabeth could relate to that difficulty of waiting and believing in the promises of God. Being barren for so long, having a dream unfulfilled, they likely included feelings of sadness, of aching, of doubt, maybe even anger and jealousy. Waiting, especially with that mindset of hope and promise, is not an effortless task. It's normal to feel discouraged, frustrated, angry, or even full of doubt. So this is where I want to focus our message. Knowing that the hope of Advent is the coming promises of God, and knowing that waiting is hard, how can we wait in a way that honors this hope? Well, the very first thing any mental health therapist is going to tell you is to acknowledge your feelings by naming them and letting yourself feel them. We don't try to ignore them, skip them, stuff them down, or even practice something called spiritual bypassing. That's when you use a spiritual explanation to dismiss anything that feels complicated or that brings up a lot of questions. If we believe God formed us, then our feelings are part of God's creation and they exist for a reason. So tell God, tell yourself, tell your journal, your friends, your family, your pets, anyone, how you feel. Share the hopes you have and what waiting feels like. Feelings are there to tell you something. And in this naming and sharing, we honor God because we were created in the image of God. After feeling and naming your emotions, the second practice is to consider our mindset about waiting. Simon Well, a Jewish writer, said, waiting patiently in expectation is the foundation of the spiritual life. What he means by expectation is not about the specific thing we're wishing for to come true, but instead that we can trust God's actions. We can trust God to keep God's promises. That is our expectation. When we wait, we are not full of bitterness or despair, but our attitudes with a sense of expectation, of trust, because God is at work. God loves us and God is good. So the nature of waiting is to do with this sense of promise that we believe is unfolding. We refocus our mindset on that promise and we wait as an action of trust and belief in God. We embody Lamentations 3, verses 21 through 26. Yet this I call to mind and therefore I have hope. Because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I say to myself, the Lord is my portion, therefore I will wait for him. The Lord is good to those who hope is in him, to the one who seeks him. It is good to wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. We will see this waiting patiently in expectation, as Simon Well calls it, through the rest of the New Testament, where we see the stories of those awaiting the birth and resurrection of Jesus and the return of the Messiah. The final way we can honor God's promise of hope while waiting is to wait together. 
to be a community that waits alongside each other. We share with one another our hopes and our feelings. We need one another because we are not made to live in complete isolation. We were made to be in relationship with each other. That means we get to know the people around us. We welcome new friendships to our life. We lean on those that we consider family, those who know us best, what we, those we trust and respect, whether they are biological or chosen family. When we share our lives with one another, we can affirm, support, and celebrate the promises of God. In community, we remind one another of the love and care our God has for us. We can make space to be together in solidarity and in encouragement. And it is together we can wait on the promises of God, the hope our Lord brings. Later in Luke 1, we'll see Elizabeth and Mary live this practice of waiting together. Henri Nouwen, a priest, a professor, an author, writes, in the story of Mary visiting Elizabeth, we see a model for the Christian community. It is a community of support, celebration, and affirmation in which we can lift up what has already begun in us. The visit of Elizabeth and Mary is what it means to form community, to be together, gathered around a promise and affirming what is happening among us. Today we've reflected on the hopes and promises found in our passage, as well as on the difficulty of waiting. We also learned a few things to consider in how we practice waiting. So where do you find yourself in this sermon? What part sparked your spirit? I'd encourage you this week to tell God and tell someone in the church community about it. Maybe you needed to be reminded about the significance of Advent, that we are loved by a promise-keeping God who hears your prayers and can be trusted. Or maybe you found the reflection on waiting resonating with you. Maybe you needed to hear that it's okay to have feelings and that it's good to express them. Maybe you have a new understanding of the practice of waiting. I know for me as an introvert who struggles to initially trust others, I always need the reminder about the importance of community and to not always be so independent. Wherever you find God revealing God's self to you in this message, take some time this week to speak to God about it and to someone in this church so that we can practice waiting with a sense of hope and expectation together, affirming the promises of God and encouraging one another. May it be so. Amen.